to four questions, I'm delighted to invite my very good friend Naomi Hussain, who is a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies. We're going to discuss her wonderful new book, um, which is Aid Lab, understanding the story, the politics, the history behind Bangladesh's unexpected success. So, in 1970, many people referred to Bangladesh as a bit of a shithole, didn't they? <laughs> What's happened since then? Yes, Bangladesh was uh, uh, the shithole of its day, of the, of the 1970s. It was called the basket case by Henry Kissinger, unfairly in some ways, but in some ways it was true it was in a really bad state, especially in 1971 after the war um, of independence from Pakistan. Um, a lot of a lot of devastation, you know, human devastation, environmental devastation. The economy was in tatters. Since then, I mean, it's changed so dramatically. It's it's almost unrecognisable. People who used to go to Bangladesh in the seventies and the eighties, if they go now, cannot recognise it. It's grown incredibly, but most most significantly, human development has mm. been really, really, uh, really, really impressively fast for a country that was at the stage of development it was in the nineteen seventies. So really, the human development is the main significant change. So how has that social progress, that big reduction in poverty, how has that happened? What, what explains that? Well, this is development studies, so there's a lot of debates about that, and a lot of people, especially if they're is in the Is it due to microfinance? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not just credit. Credit alone did not do this. I think credit did play a part, but perhaps not the part we think it was. Uh, the, the World Bank often says, and, and people in the World Bank and people who work for the World Bank say it's about growth. Mm. Um, growth is important. Of course growth is important, but my view is that growth would never have happened had the government and the society not pulled together, along with the donors as well, to prevent people from uh, suffering the kinds of crises of subsistence and survival that happened in the 1970s um, and earlier, of course, so famines, cyclones, natural disasters, those sorts of things. Um, people, were so, people were being struck so regularly by these sorts of disasters uh, prior to national independence in 71 that there was no chance anyone was ever going to benefit from economic growth. There was never going to be any poverty reduction until they'd solved that problem. So it's the politics, it's the social contract by the elites prioritising poverty reduction and protecting people from these environmental hazards. Exactly, yeah. And it wasn't, it, I mean, it was very specifically, I think, in the early 70s in particular about protecting people against natural disasters mm -hmm. and, and protecting people against famines because there were these two uh, dreadful events in 1970 and then again in 1974 after we had independence which were politically very very significant for the country um, and which taught the elites that they had to protect people against those those sorts of disasters and crises um, and Bangladesh has never had a famine since 1974 and it's increasingly impressively protected against natural disasters, cyclones, floods and so on and that I think gave people the breathing space that they needed to to benefit from whatever economic growth was there to benefit from whatever public services were being provided and also to benefit from microfinance. So, so why did the famine in 1974 change things and what changed exactly? So 74, so there, there'd been famines before mm. and they'd always been on under the you know the British rule or, or under Pakistani rule there had been uh, cyclones that had been you know left people mm. devastated and, and they were not taken care of. 74 was different because this was a national, this was a, a, a the country was independent for the first time, this mm. was a you know a much loved uh, leader was in power um, and they fought a really bloody brutal war of liberation to get there everyone was very much in support of this government um, uh, and things started to fall apart in 74. It was a post-conflict country, no food, there was an economic crisis worldwide. Mm. 
Um, the country was bankrupt, could not import the food it needed when mm. the floods came. And it really was very demoralizing for the whole country, but in particular for the one and a half million people, obviously, who, who, who suffered, who, who, who really did uh, suffer because um, about one and a half million people are estimated to have died as a result of the famine, among other things. I mean, they were poor as well, mm -hmm. and there were lots of health issues. So it's a combination of factors. So this was terribly demoralizing for the country as a whole, um, and it really did uh, teach the elites that this was, this was intolerable, because after the famine, uh, the leader, Sheikh Mujib, was assassinated along with all of his family, and we had 15 years of military coups afterwards. Um, this was taken as a sign that this was the, you know, the last straw. After that, all kinds of governments in Bangladesh, whether dem democratically elected or not, always took very seriously the issue of protecting the population against these kinds of crises. The donors also played a very murky role in 74, it must be said. The Americans withheld food aid um, on grounds technically uh, that Cold War rules prevented them from sending food aid to countries that um, had traded with communist nations and Bangladesh was trading with Cuba at that time. Um, and so withheld food aid on that ground. So people, people were dying, as I say, one and a half million people were dying and they were withholding food aid. After 74, the donors took a much, uh, took a, a much closer uh, hand, if you like, in Bangladesh's um, economics um, and development. Um, but the, the elites also, I think, decided that they could do business with the donors because they didn't really have much of a choice. I think what really happened in Bangladesh was after the seven, after 74, people didn't bother much with ideology mm. when it came to development policy. It was a matter of what works, let's mm. see what works, let's see what, what helps people become less poor. Ideology did come into it, of course, but in the end what really mattered was the bottom line. Who was, were enough people getting better off, were people eating better, were people living better? So just to understand exactly how 1974 changed things, was it because the elites felt threatened, like as in a bottom-up pressure, or was it because they empathised, or was it because they worried that their legitimacy was conditional on them doing something about them? Yeah, a very good question. Um, very hard to say for absolute sure. sure. You know, I'm, 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 I'm pulling together sources from all over the place to, to produce this to produce this analysis, um, I think it's a combination of things. One is that the the really kind of unique characteristic, if you like, of the Bangladeshi elite, and they're a bit like the Taiwanese elite and the South Korean elite in this respect, they're very similar mm. to the Bangladeshi masses, if you like. Mm. So there was a sense in which they were much closer to the people who were starving. So a sense of, of shared them. identity. So yes, definitely, there and, is that. And also I think one point you raise in the book is that in 1974 there were more commonalities between people, both because they weren't massive yeah. sort of racial or caste-based differences no, or religious, religious differences. Yeah. And also this, the 1974 conflict, uh, famine preceded the big surge in inequality or relatively it know, did yeah, then people similar. were much more similar as people they were they were much closer physically closer socially closer mm. in every in every sense culturally closer nowadays the distance between the Bangladeshi elite and the and, and, yeah, the, huge. and the mass is much bigger mm. yeah the rural population is much bigger but but even then uh, uh, even then there is still that sense of uh, being part of the whole. I think, you know, if you compare the 73-74 famine in Ethiopia, I always, always make this comparison, mm. Haile Selassie um, just really, as far as we can tell, really didn't care at all mm. about what was going on and it was politically embarrassing. They would rather not mention the famine than deal with it. By contrast, in Bangladesh, the, the president at the time, Sheikh Mujib, um, Prime Minister at the time, Sheikh Mujib, he, um, he, uh, he went to the UN 
and uh, she spoke at the UN and said, my people are starving, please help us. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't because, it wasn't from lack of personal commitment, it's just lack of capacity mm. to deal with the famine. State capacity was so weak in 74, mm. they built the state capacity to deal with these kinds of disasters after 74, and yes, the elite were threatened as well, the political elite always felt that this was, this was the source of their, the, the, the minimal, the minimum uh, needed for their legitimacy was at least try to protect people against the kinds of disasters that people in the Bay of Bengal are so particularly vulnerable to. Mm. Okay, so what we're saying is this big shock triggered the concern from the elite, leading them to prioritise poverty reduction. So that shaped the social contract, that shaped the politics, that enabled them to then support pro-poor policies. So it's not about what particular pro-poor policies were implemented, but rather the underlying politics that guided those choices. Absolutely. It was absolutely about the underlying politics. And I should say there's an important thing there, I don't know if it's one of your questions, but a very important thing here was the recognition of women. The recognition of poor rural women in particular as really quite central to the development project. Quite and why, early why on. did people realise that? Well, I think it, it was coming about the awareness of, of, of the importance of, of the state in particular doing something about poor women uh, came about in a number of different ways. And I think one of the one of the factors was the the mass wartime rapes after yeah. se- in seventy one. Um, the government really had to, and, and took a really, really quite pioneering mm. role, recognising something that was incredibly difficult for, you know, for a, a, a Muslim patriarchal mm. society, any society, to recognise Germany. They didn't mm. recognise mm. after mm. World War Two. Uh, in Bangladesh, they did, and they try. And they, this was this meant that they had to build institutions and, you know, discover bureaucrats who could who could engage with women's issues. Then again, the famine saw women come out to work. And I think just to go back to the the wartime rapes, I think one thing you really nicely highlight in the book is how this eroded this idea that male patri- patriarchs were necessarily protectors of women. Yes, exactly. And so that step in. Or during the famine, they saw these women come out to work on the public work schemes. And, you know, middle-class Bengalis, middle-class foreigners for that matter, had never seen, never, never thought that poor Bangladeshi women would mm. come out and work on in public, mm. on public works projects, and, and they did. And, and that's really another working. really important point that I think reflects shifts in ch- uh, gender relations more broadly. We often find that increases in female labour force participation are driven by a big economic shock, shifting people's interests. Mm. So like, for example, in America, when there was a decline in the median wage of young men, when men could no longer single-handedly act as breadwinners providing for their families, then more and more women go into the workforce. Or in World War II, when men left to go and fight in the war, then you have a surge in women in the labour force. It's not that people suddenly support gender equality and so they push women into the labour force. It's when you have a shock, when people's interests change, when it's advantageous for them, Mm -hmm. then they're like, yes, women, go work, that's absolutely fine. And people accept it. It's like a trade-off, you know, yeah. the, the men experience, sorry, it's supposed to be about you, but <laughs> no, 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 no. men, it, you know, because there is, in a, in a context, in a patriarchal context where men get social respect by acting as providers, it's a loss to them, it's an injury for them to allow their wives to go out to work, because that suggests they're not acting as proper men, they're not providing for their yep. families, but men sometimes might be willing to forego that social respect if there's a massive economic gain and they need it, yeah. you know, if, if there's a huge it's a matter of survival. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So. And so we see the same all over the world. Yeah. And, that, and that's one reason why we might explain very low levels of female labour force participation in the Middle East, where you have oil producing economy. Anyway, so yes, yeah, yeah. so we have a big economic shock mm. that pushes women into, into mm-hmm. the paddy fields. Mm-hmm. 
And then, and like you say with the garment industry, um, you know, that, uh, yeah. when you have the opportunity... the space as yeah. well for young, when, unmarried women when to there's come and live in yeah. Dhaka. Yeah. I mean, it was unheard of. People didn't believe it. You know, mm. in my lifetime, so I, I lived in Bangladesh from the time I was six till the time I was 16 as a mm. child. So when was that? 77 to mm. 87 or mm. so. And uh, the country, I mean, it changed so dramatically in those years. Really? You know, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, a young teenager, you never wanted to leave the house because you would be the only female on the street, so you'd wow. be harassed and prodded. And mm. but then, you know, by the nineties, it's all changed. The streets of Dhaka are very much more mixed. Women are much more not only the streets of Dhaka, the streets of many rural towns mm. and rural areas where girls are going to school, girls mm. going to college. Mm. I mean, now of course you see a lot of um, uh, of hijab, of, of, of mm, veiling, yeah. which you didn't see quite so much. But that's because women you did see. Uh, in in the past, who came out were were in burqas, but middle class women didn't veil. But nobody went out that much. Mm-hmm. So now women do go mm-hmm. out. They have a certain mobility, even if, especially the Muslim women, obviously um, cover up a bit more, cover up quite a bit more, I'd say. But that's also a bit like your point about the uh, America in the in the in the world in World War Two and the kind of backlash against that that happened in the fifties. Yeah. There is a little bit of that going on. You know, certain kinds of feminine modesty and certain kinds of mm. feminine behaviour mm. become more prescriptive. Sure. The more women go outside, the more women work, the more women take power in the market in the work in the workforce in the marketplace. But I think one really interesting parallel between both the famine and the garment industry is both are cases of an opportunity cost. You know, the, when the, when there are economic opportunities for women to go out and work, a positive opportunity, you know, that raises the opportunity cost of just staying at home. Then people go out to work because there's a shift in interest. And then when you have a huge surge and rise in women working, being in the public sphere, providing for their families, then it becomes more normal, more socially acceptable, less of a cost to go out and do it, and people become more accepting of it. They see what women can do, they see that women are equally competent, yeah. and then you see a shift in norms. You do, but I tell you what I think is mm. really interesting, and it's in Bangladesh as well as other places, the, the, the pressure on women mm. to, to work and to raise families and to do all of the... I mean, it really is very intense. It mm. really is a lot. I mean, I think that... Women's unpaid care work in Bangladesh remains one of those things that really needs to be recognised. Women's rights, or parents' rights, if you like, I mean, this is a universal thing. Mm-hmm. You see, this is one of the areas in which there hasn't been that much progress. I mean, but that's universal, right? That's Across, again universal, and, yeah. and again, I think we can explain... I, I would shut up because it needs to be... <laughs> <laughs> no, this is good. <laughs> well, I would say, so my own theory, though I'd be interested mm. to hear what you think about this, is I think social change accelerates when people see that others are changing. So, so yeah. if you see there's widespread support, if, if a woman steps forward and she's widely supported in reporting sexual harassment or whatever, then others are encouraged, so they too report. But care work is very different because in many homes, particularly middle class homes, upper, upper class homes, it takes place in private spaces. Mm. So the few men that do share care work aren't seen by others. So people continue to think it's abnormal. Mm. People continue to think, oh, men will laugh at me if they, they see yeah. me doing it. So we never realise what change is happening, so it doesn't change. Yeah. So I think that's, I mean, that, that, that's well, one. You know, I talked to my, my colleague, Sir Helen Azneen, about mm. this, and she says in Bangladesh she thinks that the gender patterns have changed a lot as well. You know, there's whole generations now who've been brought up to know that women work as well as men, even if, they are, even if it is still a deeply patriarchal society work outside the home, I should say, that women have, you know, rights to education and so on as much. And so, so there is, a younger generation is a bit different, I think, and, and you see yeah. those changes. 
and I don't think I don't think you can reverse those changes very very easily. But there is also, as I say, a kind of religious revivalism as well, which is quite widespread. Yeah. So that that has who knows how that's going to impact. I I don't know. I'd have to you know my my mm. my, my friend Lina Siddiqui would probably know more about that. I don't know how that's going to play out um, in the near future on gender relations, at least. It'd be interesting to know. But yeah, it, it has been. I mean, really, in my lifetime, the, the transformation in women's lives in Bangladesh is, is I mean, I've seen it my, in my working life. Yeah, I've seen it, yeah. I, let alone my personal life. I've seen it in my working life, you know. I, I, I went once in, in the, when I first started working in Bangladesh in the early 90s, I went to visit a woman in, I don't know where, somewhere in the south of Chadpur. And, you know, she didn't know her name. I swear to God, Alice. What? I said to you know, so you know, I was working for Brack at the time. You go and interview people. What's your name? And she said, Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, Abdul's mother. That's how people, women of a certain age, call yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and we were like, You don't have your own name. We were all saying, Come on, you know, what's your name? And she said, Oh, and then she was thinking, and she couldn't remember her name. But I mean, that's, so that's, that's, so that's, that's not necessarily an indication of the patriarchy. That's just the she cultural. She couldn't remember her but, name. But her name was she Abdul's didn't mother. Name. Wow. Okay, I'm not going to explain. You wouldn't get that no, anymore. No, okay, okay, you wouldn't I, get that anymore. I'm not that going was, to. For me, that really sticks in my head. But I'm she happy. She didn't on. even have her own name. <laughs> I would Come have on. the audacity to explain Bangladeshi gender relations to you. <laughs> but let me just offer the counter. You know, in Zambia too, it's very, very common that a woman would be called, I'm the name of my firstborn child. Sure, right? but you would still have a name. Yeah, sure, but you might. But it doesn't necessarily reflect patriarchy to do because a man can also be the same. You know, he would be the father. He would be called father of firstborn child. You know, you could just be forgetful. I'm sure I'd be accused of doing similar things. <laughs> okay, all right. So going forward, so we have this fascinating story of the politics behind poverty reduction. Mm-hmm. Going forward, what can be done to sort of amplify ongoing process and um, build sort of more inclusive growth? Because as we Bangladesh, I mean, for, uh, although we've sung its praises, there are massive problems now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've written very eloquently about how many politicians, I think you said 60%, over 60% of uh, Bangladeshi politicians also own garment factories. Or in business, yeah. yeah. So I think 60%, we don't know for sure, but it's very likely, yeah. And what that means is that they as politicians have an incentive in lax regulation, in repressing union organising, in, in, in repressing minimum wage, incre- yeah. minimum wage increases, in thwarting any attempts to improve, in, increase the cost of labour. Because they want to keep their costs low, because they want to remain attractive to buyers, they want to maintain their lucrative, not not entirely for self-interested reasons, but also for Bangladesh's growth and jobs. Yeah, I mean, I think a bit, a bit of both. Uh, I think there is a, you know, I, I, I'm very interested in the garments industry. It's not, it's not my mm. specialist field, but I, I have worked on it a bit, and I, I know a lot of people who are involved in it, garments mm. owners as well as um, workers and organisers, labour organisers. I think the, the real challenge that Bangladesh faces where it is now is that it really needs to move up the value chain right. to stay competitive. And to do that, it really needs to invest in its workers, it really needs productivity gains. Um, and uh, you know, wages have gone up. There have been a lot of struggles over wages over the last 10 years, and wages have gone up. In 2006, there was a bit of a hike here. Yeah, 2006, 2011, there were some. Uh, and uh, wages still need to go up further. Mm. But, but also, workers need to have better basic education, best, better basic training. And what we really need to see now is we need to see industry pushing the government to raise the standards of 
education, to make sure that there's decent public housing for workers, to make sure there's decent public health for workers, they're safe, they can go to work without being harassed and raped and beaten up or whatever it is that happens. All of these things will help raise labour productivity and that will help Bangladesh move up the global value But chain. how might that happen? So going back to the politics question, it's, but you know, in a context yeah. where we have seen labour mobilisation mm-hmm. in Bangladesh and that's often repressed it's violently. Not, it's not, not going away though. Mm. So um, at some point, at some point, somehow, mm. workers and employers and the government are going to sit down together. They're going to have to if they're going to stay competitive. They're going to sit down together uh, and figure out a way of, of, of moving forward, of, mm. of making workers' lives safer, mm. um, making sure their work is at least decent. Mm. Um, and uh, and that's going to have to happen because it's so urgent for Bangladesh. That said, it doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. So, for example, after the horrific incident of Rainer Plaza, where over a thousand people died when the building collapsed, um, we, the many uh, buyers and the government signed up to the Bangladesh Accord on mm-hmm. fire safety and that was supposed to then go over to government ownership. It was supposed to be domesticated in the government but that hasn't happened and instead there's been an extension of this sort of private sector transnational agreement because many people don't have confidence in the government as a regulator. You know, there are concerns raised about regulatory capture for the reasons we mentioned. So it is difficult to see how this action might... And I, and I think going back to the shithole comment, yeah. it's important to... Should I have not said that? No, no, absolutely. You know, I'm we're allowed to say, say that. What's it in the public debate? We're allowed to say it. As soon as he said shithole, you know, my, my, my neighbour Donald Trump, as soon as he said um, about the, the comment about the shithole countries, I just, my mind went back to 1971 and yes. Henry Kissinger and the basket case. And I thought, you know, these labels have material consequences. They are not just throwaway comments. Mm. It's a way of saying we, we care so little about these people, we will not send them food aid when, when, they are, when their countries like El Salvador are mm. devastated by war or, or a cyclone, even their own con- part of their own country, mm. Puerto Rico, they're yeah. quite happy. It's their own country. Mm. They're quite happy, or he's quite happy to, mm. to let them, you know, just get on with it by themselves. I think it's it is it is significant, but sorry, you were, you were going to make a point about the shithole countries and the, the girls. Oh, I, I will I will abstain from that language. What I was going to say is that in, when we're talking about the politics of inequalities in Bangladesh, it's important to recognise the global context yes. and about how buyers, in order to stay competitive on US, UK, European high streets, in order to maintain higher profits. They try to keep prices low, so they go out and hunt for the places that will offer them the lowest labour costs. So they might go to Myanmar, they might go to Vietnam, and in order to attract some of that, uh, the, the, those contracts, the Bangladeshi politicians try to keep yeah. prices low. So I think that's an important qualifier for I any... I think it is. And I we think have to understand this all yes, in the global context. It, it, that's absolutely the case. But I think also that the, you know, there, there are many... You know, business is not... Just like governments are not monolithic, business no, is not sure. monolithic. Um, you have many business leaders, young and upcoming business leaders who've been educated in the West or maybe haven't been educated in the West, mm. but know their country and really want to make a mm. positive difference. Mm. Um, and these are the people, I think, who, who, who are recognising the importance of, of taking worker, employer you know, relationships seriously. The, the challenges in Bangladesh, and I think you've written about this, and other people have written about this in Bangladesh, you've written about this. The nature of the unions has been problematic in, in Bangladesh for many years. Um, co-opted, um, patriarchal in many cases, mm. uh, very, very much aligned with, with party politics mm. rather than wor- workers' interests. 
Um, and so we're really still in the very early days of, of, of unionization, of, of labor organization in the garment sector in Bangladesh in, in any serious way. Um, I think that the evidence suggests that you know, the unions that have come up since, since the Rana Plaza tragedy, um, since because there was some there was some kind of uh, liberalisation of the of the of the yes. regulation, they're they're possibly not, you know, very seriously in the interests of of workers and so on. I, I, it's something it's something we need to watch. Something we need to understand. We do need to understand what has happened in other countries as well. You and I have talked about Vietnam and what's happened mm. there. You know, they've had a lot of labour mobilisation too. And seem to have resolved it differently mm. to Bangladesh. So I think Bangladesh needs to learn, um, and I think we can continue to research the issues to raise mm. raise the profile of, of these concerns and to highlight the fact that, you know, a country like Bangladesh without without a rights based development agenda is not never going to make it in, as a middle income country. We can't. We can't. What do you mean by that? Well, it's 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 really difficult for governments. It's really difficult for governments to. So, Bangladesh's early successes were all really uh, from a very big, from a low base. It was quite easy to scale up services. It was quite easy to do certain things that it did with a, with a you know its state wasn't very yeah, strong. Yeah. Um, it was quite easy to do those things. The more complex things like moving up the value chain, engaging in dialogue, engaging workers and employers in dialogue, in bias, you know these kind of transnational. Gauge in Bangladesh's position in the global political economy, improving state and capabilities. Exactly, mm. all of this stuff is much more complex, mm. but it also it also requires a much you know an ability to to treat the citizens as citizens, mm. not as beneficiaries, if you like, to engage with citizens. What do citizens need and want? To be accountable to citizens rather than to be giving gifts. Right. Yeah. Mm. You can't do patronage um, in the long term. I don't believe in. In a, in a middle in, middle income country, where you don't have natural resources to buy the population off, and when you're increasingly losing natural resources yeah. in the context of climate change, yeah, aside no. feminine, um, mm. if I were in the Bangladeshi government, I would probably want to try to continue to hold on to that consensus and to continue building that consensus across parties. Parties are never going to agree on everything, mm. and it shouldn't just be in the political parties either. It's got to be the social elite, mm. the religious elite, the business elite, but to agree that there's some things. That we all have to support, otherwise we're going nowhere together. Mm. You know. So yes, the elite consensus on development is really important. Mm. Yeah. Right, you and I ought to skedaddle. I think so. That was more than four questions. <laughs> <laughs>